0: Welcome to The Mechanic's Bell, a podcast of stories from history. I am the researcher, writer, and host, Robert McNamara. This is the first episode of the podcast, so I'll talk a little about how I got here and what I intend to do. My background is in journalism, primarily at magazines. And for about a dozen years, I wrote and maintained a site about 19th century history for a large company on the Internet. Running a site as part of a commercial enterprise meant I not only was doing a lot of history research and a lot of writing, but I also had to learn about search engine optimization, or SEO, as it's commonly known. SEO has a bad reputation, but to be honest, most of the people who complain about SEO don't fully understand what it is. At the most basic level, it simply means following some fundamental rules to ensure that search engines, which almost always means Google, can find your pages and properly index them when they crawl the web. Beyond the basics, SEO can be something of an art. In the early days of Google, 15 years ago or so, you could force pages to rank well by using some really blatant tricks, things like keyword stuffing. But as Google has gotten more sophisticated, SEO has also become more involved and there is always more to learn about what Google's search algorithms do. So you're thinking, okay, Mac, this is a history podcast. What does Google have to do with it? Well, Google does have an effect on writing about history on the web. Think about this. History can mean several things. It means what really happened, and it means how we interpret what happened. And it also means what gets remembered and what gets written. And it means what stories are told over time and become part of our collective memories. Now think about reading about history on the web. A lot of the time, probably most of the time, the most interesting things we read related to history are on some topic we didn't even know about, right? Think about it, you will somehow come across an article on the web about some event in history or some character who did some astonishing thing, and you think, wow, I had no idea that happened. That's amazing stuff, and I never knew about it." Now that's great, but there is an inherent problem with writing that type of material on the web. Most websites get their traffic from search, and that means people have to know what they're searching for. That really cool article about something that's really interesting, but you didn't even know about it until you read the article. Think about the obvious problem there. If not many people know about the particular topic, nobody is searching for it. That means if you publish that kind of article, even if it's really interesting, and it's backed up with solid research and graceful writing, it could just sink on the web, simply because people aren't looking for it. So there's always a pretty good chance articles on some fascinating yet little-known topic won't get many page views. And in the real world of internet companies, that's a problem. Page views translate to advertising dollars. So a lack of page views is a big problem. And here's the really pernicious part of it. If you operate a site that has a lot of pages that don't get a lot of traffic, Google may penalize your site in search results. Their reasoning is that the pages must be low quality or people would be accessing them. The penalties mean the site may tend to rank lower in search results. SEO professionals will often advise commercial publishers to weed out pages that don't get a lot of traffic to avoid those sorts of penalties. So this means you can do a lot of research on something, dig up some amazing facts, write it up in an article and publish it on the web, And in a year or two, an SEO consultant looking in a spreadsheet may say, hey, this article isn't getting any search traffic. Best to delete it before Google penalizes the site for having too much low-traffic material. I am not joking about this. It really does happen. Trust me. I know. At a place where I wrote for years, we got to the point where nothing would be published on the site until we had first checked the search volume for the particular search terms. The feeling was that if enough people weren't looking for something, we had no interest in publishing it. That's just reality. Anyway, here we are. With this podcast, I'm just doing it myself. I know how to find the search volume for any particular topic, but at this point, I'm not going to worry about any of that. I hope to tell some stories I've come across that I find fascinating, and if nobody is out there Googling for it, that's fine. I will have had my fun doing the research and collecting my notes, and then telling you the story in this format. Now you may wonder, why is this podcast called The Mechanic's Bell? What does that even mean? There was a real mechanic's bell, a literal bell with historic significance that would ring out several times a day in an unusual neighborhood on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the early 1800s. The bell no longer exists, and that neighborhood also no longer exists, but I will tell you some of the story. The tale begins 190 years ago in 1831 along the East River near the southern tip of Manhattan. It's hard to imagine now, but that area was once full of shipyards. The shipyards were not some modest neighborhood affair. These were some of the most important and most productive shipyards in the entire world at that time. A lot of notable ships were built in New York City, which seems odd today. In the early 1800s, the shipyards on the East River built a variety of ships, but they became especially known for what were called packet liners. Those were sailing ships that traveled between America and Europe. The big innovation with the packets was simply that they kept to a schedule. Up to about the 1820s, ships mostly just sailed when they were ready and scheduling was pretty loose. But to accommodate passengers and cargo more reliably, the packet lines made their best effort to keep to a schedule. And to keep to a steady schedule, the ships had to be well made so they would be reliable. Remember, they were going to cross the North Atlantic by sail. That was not an easy trip. And the ships would be pushed to the limit, racing along to stick to schedule. Following the era of the sailing packets, the New York shipyards made steamships. These included many ships that sailed the waters around New York Harbor. And by the 1850s, there were steamship lines that regularly sailed between Europe and America. Large ocean liners with large paddle wheels on their sides replaced the sailing packets. We have wonderful things in our modern world, but none of us have seen paddle wheel ocean liners in action. These ships were about 300 feet long, so less than half the length of a modern cruise ship, but still pretty large. Imagine a ship the size of a Staten Island ferry, but with massive paddle wheels on each side, and those wheels being powered by enormous steam engines. And imagine a boat like that going out to cross the North Atlantic. These sidewheel ocean liners were exciting new technology, and a lot of them were built on Manhattan's Lower East Side. By the 1840s, most of the shipyards moved uptown a little, and they were generally arranged along the East River at the edge of what today is known as the East Village. For a while, some of the most famous and fast clipper ships were built right there on the East River. In the early 1840s, the first tea clippers, ships designed to carry tea from ports in China, were built. In New York, the shipyard of William Webb built two early tea clippers, the Helena and the Montauk, and the design of tea clippers was improved and in 1844 two legendary ones were built in New York. The Rainbow was built by the Smith and Diamond Shipyard, and the Hokwa, which was named for a very wealthy merchant in China, was built by Brown and Bell. Throughout the late 1840s and into the 1850s, other clippers were built in New York. After the discovery of gold in California in 1849, there was a sudden demand for clippers to take adventurers to San Francisco. And a lot of those ships were built along what today is the East Village. Early in the Civil War, the first ironclad for the Union Navy, the USS Monitor, was built at a shipyard across the river in Brooklyn. And many years later, the huge battleship USS Missouri, the ship on whose deck the surrender documents of World War II were signed, was built at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. If you're familiar with the famous photograph of General MacArthur meeting the Japanese representatives and signing the document that ended the war, that colossal battleship they're standing on was built in Brooklyn. The day after it was launched, January 30th, 1944, this was the headline on page one of the New York Times, quote, world's greatest warship is launched in Brooklyn. Now, these days, we really don't think of New York City producing big, tangible things, but at one time, it was a manufacturing center, and it built a great many ships. So, if we go back to the early 1800s, there was a workforce of carpenters and mechanics who worked in the East River shipyards. At that time, there was no concept of fair working conditions. You worked when you were told to, and that was that. And in the shipyards, the men were expected to work as long as it was light. You began at sunrise, and your working day ended at sunset. The shipyard workers were generally very skilled. Some of them, perhaps even a majority of them, had recently come over to America from England, Ireland, and even Germany. At a time when not too many people worked with machinery, they did they were known as mechanics which at the time was a respected term in the early 1800s working with machinery was a fairly new concept there had been blacksmiths for centuries but innovations in machine tool technology had really come along in the late 1700s so in the early 1800s a mechanic was someone who was working on the cutting edge and that could even be meant in the literal sense of technology According to small accounts I dug up, some of the workers in the shipyards organized in something resembling an early union and demanded better hours. I located a lot of information about this in a fascinating book published in 1887, The Labor Movement, The Problem of Today. The book is an amazingly comprehensive account of labor struggles up to the 1800s as well as an argument in support of organized labor. The main editor of the book, a man named George McNeil, was involved in the Knights of Labor, an early and very important labor organization in America. And Terence Vincent Powderly, the president of the Knights of Labor, was also credited as an editor of the book. Powderly is not widely remembered today, but for a period in the late 1800s, he was the most famous labor leader in America. That book from 1887 contains a chapter on the building trades, and it begins with a history of labor organizing in the shipyards of early America. The author of the chapter was Edward H. Rogers, a labor activist, who, in the late 1800s, campaigned for an eight-hour working day. So Rogers would have been particularly interested in the story of the Mechanic's Bell. Here is a brief quote from Rogers. The story of the Mechanic's Bell is the story of the first victory won on this continent for less hours of toil. In his telling of the story, In 1831, the mechanics in the shipyard secured an agreement with the shipyard owners to work a 10-hour day. That's still a long day, but it's better than just working until the sun sets. To mark the occasion, the workers had a bronze bell cast and installed at the top of a new wooden tower built near the waterfront. There was, as you would expect, a ceremony held when the bell was installed. The new bell became known as the mechanics bell, and it took on significance to workers and local residents. A man named McCoy was hired to be the official ringer of the bell, and there was a detailed schedule of precisely when it would be rung each working day. Let's think about the idea of those skilled workers having the bell cast. The bell would be used in a very practical way. Workers are employed in shipyards that already had bells to mark the beginning and ending of the workday, as well as breaks for lunch and dinner. But the mechanics were saying, no, we will not report to the sound of the boss's bell. We can hear it just fine, sure, but we won't report to it. We will only report to the sound of our own bell. So there was something beyond just practical timekeeping that was going on. The sound of the worker's own bell was a beautiful sonic reminder that the mechanics had succeeded in securing better working conditions for the very first time in America. Every time the mechanics bell was rung, the neighborhood was essentially celebrating that. A history of New York shipyards published in 1909 noted that the permit to erect the tower to hold the bell was granted by the city authorities on September 19, 1831. So, presumably the tower was built soon after, in late 1831, so it would be just over 190 years ago that the bell began ringing. An interesting fact about the permit is that it described the dimensions of the proposed tower, which was not very large. It was estimated that the original bell was probably about 18 inches in diameter. In the early 1800s, there were foundries operating in Lower Manhattan that made bells as well as other bronze items. So it's likely the organization of mechanics collected money and bought a bell made nearby. In the 1840s, when the shipyards tended to move uptown a bit, the Mechanics' Bell was also moved uptown to a corner which no longer exists, East 5th Street and Lewis Street. That immediate neighborhood was demolished to build a housing project in the middle of the 20th century. At its new location, a larger tower was built, and a larger bell was also obtained. According to stories told by elderly shipyard workers in the late 1800s, the original bell was melted down and incorporated into the new bell. That would have been a practical way of upgrading a bell. In the course of reading up on this particular bell, I went down a rabbit hole on bell making. What made me curious were a few mentions I'd seen that the original mechanic's bell, as well as the larger second bell, had been cast with the metal from coins contributed by the various shipyard workers. I was skeptical of that, as things made of metal generally have to be made from specific metals. This reminds me of a story I'd come across years ago about collecting very specific bits of metal for a particular tribute. In the 1870s, following the death of the legendary newspaper editor, Horace Greeley, there was a very creative plan to cast a statue to be placed atop his grave in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Greeley had occupied a place of enormous importance to newspaper men and printers. And the idea was proposed by an organization of printers in New York City to cast a statue of the great editor made from metal that had been used as newspaper type. As you probably know, newspapers in the 1800s, and throughout most of the 20th century, were printed with metal type. The original idea was for printers to donate some type which had been used on February 3rd, 1873 which would have been Greeley's 62nd birthday. In the text of the resolution proposing this idea, it was stated that the monument would be, quote, made of type metal, which has been cast into type and worn out in the service of teaching the people. That's a beautiful sentiment, but there was a problem. The metal used for type wasn't suitable for a statue that would be outside in the weather. After the type was collected, it was decided that the bust of Greeley to be cast for his grave would be made of bronze. Incidentally, it's a beautiful monument, and if you ever get to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, I recommend you take a walk and find Greeley's grave and see it for yourself. Now, back to Bells. Bells, like statues, are generally cast of bronze, which is a combination of two metals, copper and tin. When the mechanic's bell was recast in the 1840s, it is probable that the old bell was melted down to reuse, and it's entirely possible that a few gold or silver coins were added as something of a good luck token. But the bell, for the most part, would have been made of copper and tin. There have been legends over the centuries that some bells have a beautiful tone because silver or gold had been added when they were cast. But that idea is generally dismissed as the silver or gold could weaken the casting and would probably degrade the tone of the bell. The mechanics bell cast in the 1840s lasted for decades, and it took on a great significance in the neighborhood of the shipyards. Not everyone would have carried their own timepiece in the mid-1800s, and the bell ringing out time for shipyard workers would have also regulated life in the neighborhood. I've seen stories that when old shipwrights were buried at Calvary Cemetery, the mechanic's bell would be tolled and could be heard in the cemetery. I am skeptical of those stories as Calvary Cemetery is in Queens, about three miles from where the mechanic's bell was hanging. But I wonder. For a lot of that distance, the sound of the bell would be rolling across the East River with nothing blocking the sound. Could the sound of a bell going across a river just keep traveling? The idea of the bell being heard so far away made me think about the sounds of the city in the mid-1800s. There were no trucks or cars or circling helicopters, of course. No boom boxes or subwoofers. Horses and wagons can make a lot of noise, but they wouldn't produce the traffic hum that muffles so much sound in our modern world. Perhaps it is possible that people attending a shipwright's funeral on the other side of the East River could have heard the mechanic's bell. And that story, entirely accurate or not, tells us something about how the bell was considered significant. In the years following the Civil War, the shipyards tended to move away from Manhattan. Some of them relocated to Brooklyn, some of them moved to other states entirely. The East Village remained a center of manufacturing, which seems odd today. But the great shipbuilding years of the neighborhood were a memory. The Mechanics Bell no longer served the function of regulating time for shipyard workers but it was still revered in the neighborhood. It would still be rung to mark time for other workers. And in early 1880, it suddenly developed a crack which ruined its tone. Workers in the neighborhood again contributed money to have it recast. The damaged bell was melted down and it was repaired. On November 1st, 1880, the neighborhood hosted a big celebration and the recast bell was carried to its tower on the back of a large wagon. The New York Sun published a story about the bell on its front page the next day, which noted that neighborhood residents agreed the tone of the recast bell was much the same as the bell which had been part of neighborhood life for decades. In September 1889, the New York Times reported that a new tower had been built for the bell. The article said its old tower showed, quote, signs of great agitation and shook and trembled when the bell was rung. The bell continued to be rung well into the 1890s thanks to a local character named Edward F. Moynihan. He had been born in Ireland and came to the neighborhood when he was less than two years old. His father worked in the shipyards, and the family life was centered on the waterfront of the East Village. Moynihan worked as a clerk in a ship chandlery, a store that sold equipment to the maritime trade, and he became something of a local historian of the neighborhood. When Edward Moynihan died in 1907, a fairly extensive obituary in the New York Sun noted that he could remember seeing some of the great clipper ships, including the Comet and the Flying Dutchman, launched into the East River. Over the years, Edward Moynihan, along with his younger brother Abe, became the guardians of the mechanic's bell. According to Edward's obituary, it had been the Moynihan brothers who, quote, began an agitation to restore the bell after it had cracked in 1880. Sometime around 1900, the Mechanics' Bell was taken down from its tower and moved again, this time to a location in the Bronx. A shipbuilder, William Webb, had made a fortune with his shipyard along the East River. Late in life, he became a philanthropist. He founded an institution, Webb's Academy and Home for Shipbuilders a combination of school for maritime studies and retirement home for old shipyard workers. The Academy was built at Sedgwick Avenue and Fordham Road in the Bronx at a site overlooking the Hudson River. The Mechanics Bell was taken there, essentially into retirement, along with the old shipbuilders, and its story seems to end there. The Webb Academy still exists, but it's no longer in the Bronx. In the years following World War II, it moved to Glen Cove, Long Island, and today it is known as the Webb Institute. It's a college of engineering specializing in naval architecture and marine engineering. The mechanics bell disappeared at some point. It is generally assumed that it was donated to a scrap metal drive during World War II and would have been melted down to make munitions. I was curious about that idea and wound up doing some research on World War II scrap drives. The old newspaper accounts I read make no mention of the bell, but they make the idea of it being donated for scrap seem entirely plausible. The scrap drives were prompted by shortages, and projected shortages, of material that needed to be used for war production. The basic idea sold to the public was that if you cleaned out your cellar or attic and donated a lot of things made of metal, that metal could be melted down and made into bullets or bombs. And that was how America would defeat the Nazis and the Empire of Japan. Looking at the old newspapers, it seems the first big scrap drives got going in the fall of 1942. New York City announced that different boroughs would have different days for people to pile up their scrap metal. That scheduling made it easier to organize fleets of trucks that would pick up all the junk and carry it to yards where it would be sorted and sent on to be processed. October 8, 1942 was a day for Brooklyn residents to pile up their scrap. That day, the New York Times reported on page one that Brooklyn sidewalks were already stacked high with scrap metal. A week later was the scrap drive in the Bronx, and as you might imagine, there was some rivalry. I was interested in reading about that as the Webb Institute, the last known location of the Bell, was still located in the Bronx before moving out to Long Island in 1946. I read news stories about the scrap drive in the Bronx and couldn't find any mention of the mechanic's bell. But there were plenty of stories about remarkable things being sent to the scrap drive. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that metal from the bell did wind up as part of a bomb dropped on Germany or a shell fired on Iwo Jima. Or, who knows, perhaps the bell will turn up at some point in a cellar in the Bronx. Is it a shame that the bell is probably gone for good and can't be seen or heard today? Sure, it would be nice if it still existed as an artifact of those old shipyards along the East River. But the bell was always more than a bell. It was a symbol. And the bell belonged to a specific time. If it is ever found and put on display, or even if it's rung again, it wouldn't really be the same. It would be a museum piece and it wouldn't be a functional part of a working class community ringing out as the bell the workers would answer to. So that's some of the story of the mechanic's bell. Try to remember the lesson those shipyard workers passed down to us from 190 years ago. If you don't want to answer someone else's bell, you can get a bell of your own, and you can answer that. Thanks for listening to this first episode of The Mechanic's Bell. I have lots of notes for upcoming episodes, and they will be coming along. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast through whichever app you happen to use. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I can be found at History1800s. Talk to you soon.